From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. I'm Adam Cano, and joining me today is Emily Wilkins. She is the 117th president of the National Press Club and Washington correspondent for CNBC. Emily, welcome to Update One. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Before talking about your goals as president this year, let's talk about the club itself. The pandemic is behind us. So what should members and others know about the club and its current operations? I mean, I think the most exciting news is that we are finally back to five nights a week being open for drinks, for dinner. It took a while to get here because we were trying to be fiscally responsible, um, but we are truly back. Popcorn Machine is back. I'm personally very excited about that. Um, and I think if you come to the club, you'll start seeing a lot of little changes. Um, DDA, uh, you know, who took over as executive director last year, he's had a lot of really great ideas. Most of them at this point have been behind the scenes when it comes to the kitchen, uh, the utensils that we're using, uh, the appliances that we've got back there. We just went through a, a very big update that we're hoping is just going to lead to generally better service for our members. And I'd also encourage everyone to keep an eye out because around mid-February, we're going to be rolling out a new menu in the reliable source. Um, and again, this is something where uh, food, hospitality, drink, those are all DDA's passions. And I know that this is a project he's excited about. And as someone who has gotten to uh, to try some of his new creations, it is a project that I am very excited about. So I think that that's one thing. Um, another thing to kind of let club members know in terms of the club's physical space is that a big priority that we've identified um, that we all want to get started start working on is the working space in the club. Uh, we know that it's pretty good if you want to spend some time in the club, but we know there are issues. The Wi-Fi is slow. Uh, lunch options really are limited to the buffet. Um, there's not necessarily a quiet place to take private phone calls. And those are things that we really want to update, especially knowing that in this day and age, uh, having that remote working space is, is more critical than ever uh, and a good way to really get, get people to the physical club. So those are two things I'm excited about. I've got many more, but Adam, I know you've got many more questions. Well, you mentioned Didier. Um, and so Didier Soji, um, you know, new executive director, or at least I keep calling him the new executive director. He's been on the job since June of 2023, but succeeded uh, the long-serving uh, Bill McCarron, who is sticking around to help in a press freedom role. You know, given Didier's international experience, what are you sort of most looking forward to in terms of working with him this coming year? Didier has been really fantastic to work with. It's it's fascinating to see the transition between Bill and DDA because I feel like both of them had these really amazing strengths, but they're in different areas. And so DDA's strength, and kind of touched on this, you know, he comes from the hospitality space, the, the food space, the restaurant space. Um, and he really, I think, is looking at the club in terms of what can we do to make sure that this is the best experience for members when they walk into the reliable source? How do we make sure that we really meet them with the professional quality that you would expect from the National Press Club? Um, and I think that's just something that he's got the background and the passion for. Um, I know there's also been a lot of kind of little things where he's gone through and we talked about some of them in the strategic plan. You can now use Apple Pay and credit cards uh, when you are buying drinks at the bars downstairs. You don't need to run to the ATM anymore. Uh, again, I mentioned the Wi-Fi. It's little things like that that DDA has identified 
uh, is really trying to bring a, a fresh perspective to the club. Um, I will also say that I am just immensely, immensely grateful uh, that Bill McCarran has stuck around as a consultant for us on press freedom work. I mean, Bill is just, I, I think there was an article in the Washington Post that just really noted him as basically the unsung hero for a lot of the press freedom stuff that's going on. Bill is passionate, he is dedicated, he is just so on top of things. He just has a, an immense commitment to this. And I am honestly enthused that he is now in a role that really lets him exclusively focus on press freedom, um, because I think that has become a larger and larger part of the club's mission and focus. And we have some more changes that we are looking into this year to make sure that press freedom can remain a core function of the club, regardless of who is executive director, who is president. We know that the club naturally kind of comes with a good bit of turnover, but we want to make sure that consistent through that all, we are remaining committed to, um, to Deborah Tice uh, to Evan Gershkovich's parents, uh, to also Kumasheva's family, um, and all other groups that we are working with uh, to really support detained journalists uh, in other countries, exiled journalists here in the U.S., and make sure that we're supporting domestic reporters as well, because uh, we know that the the threats to their safety and security, um, unfortunately, have been going up in recent years. We'll get to a couple of the folks you mentioned in a minute. I do want to commend members if they haven't read. The strategic plan that's just come out, it is uh, very detailed and talks um, quite specifically about a lot of initiatives uh, to, to look forward to. Um, you did mention press freedom. Obviously, that is an overarching theme and mission of the club. You know, what more do you think we can do as a club, um, you know, perhaps than we are doing already? So I think it's what we're doing at the club right now. There are lots of different touch points for press freedom. You see the president doing a lot. Uh, when Bill was executive director, you saw him doing a lot. We, of course, have our press freedom team, which this year is being headed by Rachel Oswald, who is just a fantastic um, advocate, and very passionate in the space. You have the press freedom task force to try and tie everything together with, say, you know, the press freedom team and the institute and the international correspondence team. You have the institute that has press freedom um, as a mission. And so I think one of the things we're thinking about, can we have sort of one touchstone, one place? where all of the club's initiatives kind of come together. And when people kind of think about what the club is doing with press freedom, there's kind of one space they can think about. Uh, we also want this to be a fundraising component. Uh, we believe that there's more that can be done here. Um, and we're in discussion about a center, a press freedom center. And right now we're in early discussions about what that looks like, how that would uh, be a sort of a part of both the club and the Institute. Um, so I don't I don't want to put the cart before the horse too much here, but I am excited because I think when you talk to members and we know this because we recently did a, a membership survey and thanks to everyone who participated in that, that press freedom is something our members are passionate about. And I think in, in this day and age, when you look at um, the U.S., when you look at the world, it's something that a lot of folks can get behind. And the press club really has has muscle and has power in this space. And I want us to really step up and to own that power and to be able to spread our influence as far as we can, uh, to increase it as much as we can, and to really make sure that this is something uh, that the club is, is very much focused on and has the infrastructure to focus on, because I know how important it is to so many of our members. Austin Tice held captive in Syria for almost a dozen years, continues to be top of mind for you and other club members. Um, anything on new on his plate, as well as anybody else you want to highlight in particular that the club is fighting for? 
Uh, of course. I mean, I, I do want to be kind of careful what we say about Austin. I know that, you know, there's a lot of sensitive conversations going on. And and to be honest, uh, some of them, there's some that I've only just learned about. What I can say is that the club is being active on this. I recently heard from someone who seemed to be under the impression that, you know, the club is just continuing to say the name Austin Tice and do nothing more than just say the name. And I want to say that that's not the case. The club has a number of partners that we are working with who are also dedicated to bringing Austin Tice home. And those partners um, we have reason to believe that he is still alive and that he still can be free and that he still can come home. I, I think right now we're in this period where it's tough, right? I mean, I, I don't I don't want to compare apples to oranges or, or downplay anything. But I know that, you know, every once in a while, you get to see Evan Gershkovitz. You get to see him in court. There he is. He's behind that glass box. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, you know, there is still a sense that there is a lot of momentum out there in the wider public. They know who he is. They want to bring him home. And certainly, we are going to continue to work with the Wall Street Journal, with Evan's family to bring Evan home. There is, we know there's momentum there. We will keep that momentum going. Same thing with also Kumasheva, uh, Radio Free Europe. Um, obviously, her case, another tragic incident of an American that is being detained unjustly and unfairly in Russia. Journalism is not a crime. And we're continuing to fight and push for her case as well. I think there is something that happens just within the, the psyche of individuals when they hear that someone has been held for 100 days or 300 days versus almost a dozen years. And the message that I really want to get out with Austin Tice is that I know that the situation can feel um, a bit hopeless. I, I want to be honest about this. It, it does feel a little hopeless that every year we, we say his name, we say we're going to bring him back and we, we ask for him to come home. And I know that it's heartbreaking when that does not happen, but this is the time that we really need to stay in the fight. This is the time that more than ever, we need to continue to say Austin's name and tell a story and tell people about him and put the pressure where we can for him to come home. Uh, I know that 12 years is a long time. Um, I know how that kind of feels in your gut when you hear it, but this is the time that we really need to step up because if we don't, um, we, we let the anti-democratic, anti-press, anti-fourth estate forces win. That's what they want. They want us to forget his name. They want us to feel hopeless. They want us to give up. We are not giving up. We will fight for Austin until he comes home. I don't care how long it takes. I hope it doesn't take much longer, but we are here, we are in the fight, and we are not quitting. And in fact, we are doing things to make ourselves stronger so we can even be more powerful as we push for Austin. Media literacy is another important topic too, of course, goes hand in hand with press freedom. But you know, research shows trust in journalism and you know, even acceptance of its fundamental role in a free society is at an all-time low. Do you, do you see a way for organizations like the NPC to reach beyond that usual audience, beyond that echo chamber? It's a great question. Um, and I think it's a it's a complex one because I think a lot of news organizations are trying to figure out how do you reach folks, um, you know, in an environment where, you know, suddenly people are getting their news through TikTok and Facebook and social media um, and through a number of sites that, that quite frankly, I don't think deserve to be called news sites. Um, but I think the question here is to how do we want to partner? How do we want to get out the message? And I think it is something we are certainly thinking about. 
Um, we recently had uh, a starting point, which is an organization um, that is actually headed by uh, Chris Evans, a Captain American actor, and Mark Casson, who is another actor, producer, and award winner in his own right. Um, they were both here talking about a starting point, which is basically an educational website that tries to, you know, educate folks on the basics of the issue, kind of be a starting point for, for going into the news uh, and just really getting the basics of some of the big issues out there. And I told them, I'm like, hey, we should partner. We should make sure that we're doing that for, for the news. Um, and I also want to, you know, be diligent as far as how much the club does things like that versus does things like, say, press freedom, uh, professional development, community building support. Um, I am someone who tends to like, likes to do it all. I think all of it is so important and so critical. I also know that when you try and do it all, what usually happens is that you don't do everything as well as you hope that you would do it. And so I certainly think we're on the lookout for media literacy. I will also just be honest that I know there are lots of great groups that are doing that. And I want to make sure that the club is focused on things that make sense for our membership. 2023 saw the rise of chat GPT and other forms of generative AI, and we all see it starting to impact certain industries and journalism is not immune to that. Um, what role do you think the club can play in the protection of our craft and frankly, to help those journalists who may be impacted by it? I think this does in, a, in some capacity tie into our press freedom efforts. I mean, we certainly want to make sure that journalists are not being misrepresented, that there are not fake images and videos going around of reporters saying things they never said or doing things that they never did. I think this is very much a new area. Uh, I cover AI uh, with CNBC and, of course, where it is in Congress. And, you know, you get the sense up there that there is a lot of interest and there aren't a lot of answers yet. I think a lot of folks are still trying to understand this technology, what it is, what it does how to foster innovation at the same point, protecting folks from harms. And I think it's one of those things where the club actually has a really good infrastructure that when we see um, reporters either being detained, harassed, um, just very treated unfairly, there are conversations that, that go on. You know, do we need to step in? Is this something the club needs to do? And I think that's going to be a conversation that we have when it comes to AI, when it comes to things crossing the line, harming journalists, and certainly a huge shout out to, to the Institute. They do such amazing training sessions and professional development sessions for journalists. Um, and I'm excited to see what they wind up doing in this space as well. Um, I know that, that uh, uh, Beth Francesco, our executive director, I know she's got a lot on her plate and a lot of really great ideas. Um, but I think this is also, you know, a space where our partners and, and friends at the Institute could play a role as well. I don't want to speak for them, but I also just the fact that we have that infrastructure in place. Um, so as we're learning more about AI and its potential roles, we already have the infrastructure there. If, of course, um, Beth and her team chooses to kind of dig deeper into that. Your background includes significant experience covering government at the state, local, you mentioned congressional levels. What evolution have you seen in the coverage of that beat, especially since your arrival here in D.C.? You know, when I was an intern um, and Rick Dunham was was my first boss and then my introduction to the National Press Club, I remember going to the Hill um, and, you know, there there would be a good number of reporters there at, at stakeouts. And since then, it just seems like the number of reporters has absolutely just expanded. I mean, the number of news organizations who are there that were not there when I began reporting for, for the first time on the Hill a decade ago is, is incredible. 
I mean, I was a reporter at Bloomberg government. Bloomberg government was a brand new thing when I was uh, first beginning to, to come to DC and to, to report on the Hill for the first time. Axios, um, you know, I, I lean over ILU, uh, you know, that was a, a new endeavor. Um, I think Politico has really, you know, definitely grown, evolved uh, during that time. Uh, Semaphore, um, I mean, I, I won't mess in the, mention the messenger given everything that's happened, but there's so many new news organizations coming there and so many new reporters on the Hill. Um, and I think there, there's probably an interesting conversation to be had about the number of folks that are currently on Capitol Hill versus the number of folks who are currently in state capitals. Um, certainly, there's a lot of important stories to be covered on Capitol Hill. Um, there are a lot of important deep dives to do. There is certainly plenty of room to have multiple reporters digging into things and writing stories from different angles. Um, but I think we are kind of cognizant, and I think Eileen did a great job with this with her series on news deserts, about what areas aren't being covered. And what does that mean that coverage begins to be concentrated in areas like DC, New York, LA, but not in sort of key um, smaller towns. And I can say from my personal experience, I worked for a local news organization. It was my first job at um, the Bryan College Station Eagle. I loved it. It was a great opportunity. I loved covering, you know, the city council, the internal debates that would pop up, um, just kind of getting to be like the reporter for that town. I can also say that, and, and this is not meant to be to be a knock on them because I know they did the best they, they could with what they had, but that was not a place I could be long term. Um, I I would need have needed to like marry like someone who was extremely rich uh, if I wanted to continue to work there. And, and meet some of my other life goals. Um, there wasn't a lot of upward mobility. Um, and they, you know, there was a sense that a lot of us, you know, were, were working, you know, far beyond the 40 hours a week to try and make sure that we had good high quality content. Um, and that was a personal choice a lot of us made because we cared, um, but I know it was difficult. And I can't imagine, you know, for those who do want to serve their, their hometowns, um, and, you know, cities, I mean, that such incredible reporting happens there. Those places deserve oversight. The folks who live there deserve transparency and accountability. Um, and like I said, I, I don't, I don't pretend to come here with, with answers. Um, but I, I will go ahead and kind of say that that is something I, I think about a lot. Just the number of reporters who are up there at the Capitol versus the, the number of reporters who are, say, covering a city council meeting on any given night. Especially poignant when you say that in 2024 during an election year, again, not just at the national level, but you know, throughout the country at various levels. Yeah, no, I mean, it's and, and again, this is the thing. It's like we all focus on the presidential. I mean, as someone who does congressional elections, the Senate and the House, we all get amped about those. But, you know, a lot of folks aren't even cognizant that those are happening. And then you get to the state legislative levels and then you get to, you know, the city level, city council and mayor. And I know not everyone has elections in November of 2024, but the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes local elected officials can have far more power over individuals' lives than the federal officials. And the fact that they aren't being covered, um, I think, is, is such a huge red flag. I mean, take, take George Santos. I know that there was some coverage from him from local papers. Um, but just the fact that that he was able to be elected without having his background vetted, I think just really, really speaks to the need that we have for more local journalists and for solutions in coming up with how do you make that financially sustainable? How do you make it so that people who hold those jobs can have a good livable salary um, and, you know, upward mobility, career advancement, and, and I think everything that most of us in, in any profession want, really. Emily, thanks so much for your time.
Thanks so much for having me, Adam. Emily Wilkins is the 117th president of the National Press Club. You can follow her on X at EMR Wilkins for update one. I'm Adam Cano in Washington. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com.